I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Headless Creator Podcast, episode 31. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Headless Creator Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, creators, and other professionals who use a headless CMS and other related headless technologies for omni-channel content delivery. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a senior content solutions architect focused on content modeling, content architecting, and headless CMS implementations. I'm also a certified contentful professional and the founder of headlesscreator.com. Today, I'll be chatting all about microcopy, what it is, why it's important, and how to manage it in a headless CMS with my guest, Melissa Burfitt, a senior content designer at Nationwide Building Society. But before we get started, I want to remind you to visit headlesscreator.com for more podcast episodes and to watch the content modeling show where I show you how to content model live on Twitch. All right, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have you here. Very glad to be here as well. Thank you. You work with microcopy all the time. Yes. <laughs> so that's why you're here. You're the professional. We're going to have lots of questions to ask you. But before we get started, let's get some background on you. What do you do? Tell us how you got to where you are today. Yeah, my name is Melissa. I'm a senior content designer at Nationwide, as you mentioned. Nationwide is the world's largest building society. We have over 15 million members. I'm based in the UK. I've been working in kind of online content and editorial for just over 10 years now, which feels hard to believe, but there we are. And um, uh, my background is I uh, studied English at university and I worked in the industry for a while. And then I predominantly worked as a writer before kind of identifying that I was really interested in kind of design patterns and the kind of the wider methods of communication that you can use to influence someone's kind of understanding and behavior. And psychology has always been a passion of mine. So I took a postgraduate study in user experience design and from there moved into, uh, you know, content design as a discipline. So yeah, I've been at Nationwide for just over two years now and um, get to work on lots of really interesting projects, influencing how people kind of digest our information and make make decisions about their financial lives. <laughs> now, you said you did some writing prior. What kind of writing were you doing? Yeah. So, well, before kind of moving into content design, I was actually a travel writer. So I've quite a different kind of area. I did uh, hotel reviews and travel articles and that kind of thing. So it was a bit of a shift. But as I say, the kind of understanding people and the science of kind of communication really interested me. So I wanted to get to something a bit more technical. What was the trigger that said, this is what I want to do that you tried out by mistake? I mean, how did you get to it? So I was working for a travel website um, in the editorial team, and we had a website transformation project come into play. And I realized that I actually found myself quite frustrated because I was observing how these changes were impacting the way people were digesting my writing. And I realized that it went, you know, that was where it really kind of crystallized to me that it goes beyond the written word. And it's so much about structure and layout and design patterns and, you know, gestalt principles and those kinds of things. So it really piqued my interest. And that's what led to me undertaking further education to understand that better. I then went freelance for a while so that I could broaden my portfolio 
know, of projects and experience in that space. And then I found uh, myself at Nationwide. So yeah, a varied experience. <laughs> and it's really crazy to believe that behind microcopy, there's so much science and psychology to get people to act or do something, right? And we're going to talk about all that. But you mentioned, let's start with two things. You mentioned design patterns. But before you talk about that, what, what, that, what you mean by that, what is microcopy? Let's define that. Sure, absolutely. So microcopy is essentially kind of to my mind, short, standalone content. It's very concise and it usually has a very specific purpose. It's there to do a job. So examples of this might be kind of labels for input fields, error messages, titles or headings, or, or even like uh, tooltip content, for example, really focused pieces of content that, that have a clear communication purpose. So you mentioned design patterns. What do you mean by that exactly when it comes to microcopy? So design patterns might be essentially kind of combinations of elements that we use to have a certain impact. So an input field is a, a good example where you might have, you know, the title and then you might have a descriptor and then you've got the field itself. Some people might place content in there to kind of give an indication of how to fill it out or they might lean on the descriptor above or below, for example. We tend to do it above. And then there's the error message that might be generated should you, you know, fill in that field incorrectly. So that whole kind of, there's a whole little ecosystem there of content that works together. And, and that's what I would kind of describe as a type of content pattern. Now, does every company have a different design kind of pattern or is this based on psychology? Like you mentioned, putting a tooltip on top versus the bottom versus the right. How do you go about designing that kind of stuff? Yeah, so it's a mix of things. I mean, every company has their own style and, you know, if it's not just a house style or brand guidelines, it might be, you know, for us, it's experience language. But in terms of, you know, how you come to those decisions, I think, yes, you start with that kind of that understanding of principles. So I mentioned Gestalt principles, you know, there's the, my my favorite is the uh, proximity. And that's a really good one for microcopy because it's that thing of having it right where, you know, where it's relevant alongside the field where something's gone wrong. If it's on the other side of the page or it's it's not obvious why it's there or what it's doing. So things like that really help you as a starting point. And then as with anything like this, you know, testing and research to kind of establish and monitoring once it's live to establish the performance and refine it is key. Yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned some examples of microcopy, which obviously people find on websites. We also have web apps, right, which are not really websites, but they're apps that we use to do our work. For example, Google Docs would be a perfect example of that, that everybody knows about. Um, are there any other examples of microcopying something like that? And then the other thing is IoT devices, like, for example, Alexa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of crossover between apps and websites. Um, you know, you're still going to need your, you know, your error messages, for example, your inline error messages, that kind of thing, if you're using inputs. But equally, you know, it's labels, it's, you know, call to action buttons in particular and, and an app are going to be really important for kind of guiding you through those journeys, that kind of thing. In terms of Internet of Things, I think that's where conversational content probably lends itself very well to microcopy because, you know, you need to be able to have simple, succinct answers that help a user interact, get result, get a feedback and direct them to where they need to be. So I imagine that has a lot of a lot of call for microcopy. Yeah, definitely. It'd be really interesting to see how that is implemented, let's say in the CMS where you're entering the field name for one, but maybe, I mean, I it's probably not even field names for an IoT app. I would think it would be more like enter your name or what is your name, maybe. I don't know. 
It just seems like it would, like you said, very conversational versus the other one where you're reading, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to replicate that conversation, aren't you? And I mean, progressive disclosure is a massive thing in microcopy when you're doing these kind of focused journeys where you kind of, you're gradually releasing content so that you're not kind of overwhelming the user or telling them anything that's not relevant. So in the same way, that that would happen in a conversation. It's, it's similar in, you know, an app or any kind of form-based journey, really, where you're kind of stepping someone through information and microcopy is really useful for that. Yeah, definitely. So many people talk about a microcopy writer versus a UX writer. Is there a difference? Yeah, that's quite an interesting question. I think it seems that to me that microcopy writing can be viewed as a kind of a, a type of UX writing. And it, I feel like with these terms, <laughs> I don't know, the risk of sounding controversial, it really is semantics, isn't it? Because, you know, UX writing and content design often get conflated as well. And I think a lot of it comes down to your organization and how they define those terms and the team structures that they've got going on there. For me, the, the core thing is that with all of these titles and all of these roles, it's all about writing user-focused content, right? Where we, we're trying to, the core value is to understand the user and be as, as helpful and clear as possible. So I think that's what unites all these terms, even if there are variations going on around the industry. <laughs> right, right, definitely. And I'm wondering, and I'm just going to pose this question, is does a microcopywriter focus mainly on microcopy versus a UX writer, anything that appears in the user experience, whether it's microcopy or not? Just wondering if that may be a difference or not. Yeah, well, that would be my interpretation of it. I think if, you know, a UX writer, I mean, we don't have UX writers at Nationwide. We have, we have content designers. So if I'm if, and I know that those terms get conflated. So from my experience as a content designer, I would say you could be writing content anywhere. You know, you could be writing long guides or you could be writing right down to, you know, inline error messages, which I know we'll probably talk about. There's a whole breadth there. And it's certainly, you know, I think microcopy, because it's got that definition in the name, you would expect that role to be focusing in on that specific type of content when they're writing. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the team uh, involved in writing microcopies. So why don't we just talk about what is that collaboration process? And then at the end of the day, who's in charge of, of writing that content? So from my experience, when, when working on microcopy, it's actually, it's a very collaborative process. But who's involved often depends on the, the nature of that content. But in terms of uh, experience I've had, you know, writing an error message, for example, I'd be working with our business analysts, our UX designers and our developers to identify what's going on in that journey contextually, what is going to be possible or required in terms of what what those what that content needs to do. And with, you know, for example, with developers, it's it's all about the capabilities, right? Can we recognize enough about what's happened to give a super specific message? Or actually do we need to be more general because we just haven't got the capability there at this time? So it's an interesting one in terms of you know, who you bring in, it really depends, but I would say you're always going to get a better result if you're collaborative. In terms of that kind of decision-making element, it's quite a kind of a fun one to think about really, because, you know, one of the, one of the things that you try and do as a content designer is influence people. So if you can influence a, a developer or to get on board with your way of thinking, you can potentially persuade them to facilitate more specific messages that might be more helpful to the user. But it's all about, so for me, it's all about building relationships and trying to demonstrate the value of those, you know, just going that extra mile potentially to get a, a better result. 
It's interesting what you said, because I never thought about this, where there's rules on the back end that need to be satisfied before a particular microcopy can be displayed. So you as a writer, are you coming up with those rules? Like, for example, if you put in an email with a .edu, then we want to say something versus if you put an email with a .com as an example, that may be a silly example, but I mean, do you come up with those rules or do you, or does the developer tell you, Hey, these are all the things that can go wrong here. We need copy for that. And what is that collaboration specifically? Sure. Yeah. That's a really good question. Cause it really, I mean, I think as much as anything else, it really can vary what you might find in one team within an organization, let alone from organization to organization. But I would certainly advocate for a content designer really helping to direct that conversation and that decision-making process. One of the things I've worked on at Nationwide is a kind of, you know, quite robust and potentially slightly dry, but I think people do enjoy it, set of error message guidelines that really help people identify, depending on the input field that they're working on, the nature of the error messages that we might feel are needed to be presented. And one of the things that we look at is things like accessibility. So the more specific you can be with an error message, the more useful it is to a customer. And in that way, we might be bringing a perspective to the conversation that the other team members might not be as aware of. Um, That's certainly been my role previously to kind of shine a light on that side of things. So specificity is something we really advocate for. And although it is very much a collaborative decision, like at the end of the day, sometimes it's just not possible. And you have, I think pragmatism is really important. But I would certainly always be advocating for error messages of a certain level of specificity and accuracy to support users in making those decisions. And we have, as I say, guidelines that we as a team refer to, to help us make those decisions and influence those discussions. Now, you mentioned accessibility multiple times. So I want to touch upon that a little bit more. I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. Maybe you can give us an example of an error message or whatever you like, a field label, whatever that is. I don't know what the word is. It's accessible. Is that what we would Uh, use? Yeah, um, yep. I think so. I'm yeah. not entirely sure yet. I'm not either, <laughs> but uh, in, in, an example that isn't, right? That isn't. Uh, and then also let's define accessibility, if you can expand on that a little more. Yeah. I mean, so accessibility is ensuring that your designs are usable and as inclusive as possible for anyone who is ex- disabled. And when we talk about, we use the term disabled because people may be There's different types of disability. So you can be, that can be like a permanent disability. It can be a temporary disability or it can be a situational disability. So when we say situational, that might be as simple as someone kind of trying to read something out in the sun while holding a baby. You know, the situation means that they're disabled in their ability to take in that information at that time. So there's a real breadth of situations that can be applied when thinking about accessibility. In terms of an example I'll just run with that error message as well because it's in my head. So one of the things we think about when creating error messages is if it's next to an input field. Yes, if you you know you you have uh, full use of your site and you can see everything on the screen really easily. You know, if there's an error, if you've put something in the input field incorrectly, you can just say, you know, this is incorrect. Please try again. But if you're using a screen reader or have any other range of accessibility needs. That's a very vague message. If you read that in isolation, it doesn't really tell you anything. So one of the principles that we have is to always make sure that your error message can stand alone. 
can be made sense of regardless of if it's seen or read alongside anything else. So you might move away from something like that and say, you know, this date does not exist. Please try again. You've made clear what's happened and what they need to do. And even if they can't see anything on the screen, they know that it's the input field where they've entered a date. Something like that just kind of hopefully paints a bit of a picture as to kind of how we might be thinking about accessibility when we're doing things like micro content. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that clears things up. So let's talk about error messages. And you mentioned to me prior that there are two types of error messages. Can you expand on that? Yes. So there are standalone error messages. So for example, you know, when you cannot, something cannot be verified, you know, the famous error 404, not found, those kinds of messages that might stand alone on a page, or there are inline error messages. So for example, you've entered your password incorrectly into a field or, you know, the date that you've written doesn't exist or, you know, your password doesn't match the other example you've given, something, incorrect email address, you know, lots of examples like that. So those um, sit in line with an input generally. And that's, that's what I mean when I refer to those. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So expand on what an error message needs to do. Like, are there parts to an error message that you test to make sure that it meets all the criteria? Yeah, I mean, there are two fundamental things you want to achieve with any error message, really. It needs to tell the user what's gone wrong, and it needs to tell them what they can do to fix it or move forward in any way. If that hasn't happened, you're in trouble. And that can be different for different people. So, error 404 is a good example, because to one person, that might make perfect sense. Sorry, I'll try again. That can be different for different people. For an error 404 message, that can be really clear to one person, but to another person who's never heard of that term, it it means nothing. So you need to think about how you can make sure that your user in your given scenario understands what's gone wrong and knows what steps they can take to fix that. So those are the basic components that you would expect to see in any error message. And from there, you want to tailor it based on things like tone of voice and the situation. Yeah, that's what I would say when you're thinking about error messages they need to do. Yeah, and that just brought in my mind personalization. How does that affect those kinds of error messages? So for example, let's say you have an error message, a standalone error message, like it's some sort of system error message. If I'm logged in as a regular user versus being logged in, let's say, as a super admin, would it be a different message because with different resources for me to figure things out? How would that work? Yeah, exactly that, really. So as we say, if we've got to tell someone what's gone wrong and how to fix it, there are, you know, that means different things for different people, depending on their action, or what action they've taken, or if it's something that's happened elsewhere, the responsibility they have for it, and also the next step. So for example, if it's a user, it might be, okay, you, you know, this isn't here, so you need to try the homepage. But if it's, um, you know, an admin who's or a developer who's going in to fix something, then actually their actions would be completely different. So it's about thinking about the journey and the jobs to be done that 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 user is going to have in mind and tailoring it to their needs in that situation. And then knowledge, you know, what level of knowledge do they have about what's going on and how do you tailor that message to make sure it's useful for them? Yeah. What about field names? Would that fall under microcopy? Is that something that there's science behind, like even what to call a field itself, not just the error message if something goes wrong? Um, yeah, field names is an interesting one. I think with that, there's a, a comp, well, with so many of these things, there's a combination of considerations. But so one of the things we would look at with field names is that kind of natural language, common parlance. You know, when you're doing research as a content designer, you know, I'm 
always kind of sat there listening in and scribbling away and making notes of the natural language that a user is using so we can try and mirror it back to them. So like even things like phone number fields, you know, because is it phone number? Is it telephone number? Is it landline? Mobile? Like what's normal for people? And, you know, depending on how many fields you've got, how do you make sure that you're super clear on that? So understanding as much about your user as possible is really useful there. Equally, so, you, you know, it's user needs, it's experience, language guidelines, you know, your house style, that kind of thing all plays into it. Well, and I'm thinking even industry-based terminology. For example, let's say one industry calls a customer customer, another one calls them client. I don't know if that makes a big difference too when it comes to that kind of microcopy. Yes, definitely. At Nationwide, we tend to use the term members because we have members of our building society. So that's a really good one in terms of how we might operate. And it's actually quite funny because sometimes... I'm working on a third-party access piece at the moment and we have this thing where we're talking, everyone defers to referring to the member when we talk about our member-facing content. But I um, I keep switching it up and saying customer-facing because with third-party access, it might be that a trusted person is supporting them who isn't necessarily a member. So it becomes really kind of granular in terms of what fits for any given situation. Sometimes it's member, sometimes it's customer. And, and then you're right across the industry, it might be what works or makes sense for, for a particular organization as a whole as well. And, and that can really vary. Yeah, that makes sense. And so then that also brings up the um, internal terminology versus external, right? Companies may have internal terminology that they, that makes no sense to customers outside. And I guess that may fall even under taxonomy. So why don't we talk a little bit about that microcopy taxonomy, terminology, categories. Do you have any tips on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, categorizing content is very satisfying because it's always good to kind of put logic around these things and systems so that you can kind of more efficiently. So I'm not the only one that loves categories and taxonomies. <laughs> okay, I thought I was the only weird oh, I person. Love it. Okay, good. No, I love it. It's one of the first things I did. <laughs> My first project in HR, I was like, let's categorize everything. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So one of the things we have is um, an experience language. And in that, for example, we have in page messages. And this is a type of micro content that might appear on any given page. It will be accompanied by a kind of colored icon to get the user's attention about something that they need to be kind of alerted to, as it were. And as part of that system and taxonomy, what we've done is we've graded them according to the kind of seriousness and impact of that message and and the impact that they don't see it. So with any given piece of content that we know is going to be an in-page message, we then have to identify, okay, is this, you know, just good to know, or is this actually really important, or is this of, of serious consequence if they don't see this? And we we think about things like that when we're categorizing our content to help us kind of, you know, structure pages as a whole and work within these design systems, but also work collaboratively with our, our UI designers and our UX designers so that we can easily move through simple tasks and all be on the same page about them. So up to this point, we've been talking about field labels, field names, tool tips and a variety of system errors and other kinds of messages. But there's the very important form based content. Can you tell me more about that? And is there research that goes behind that? I would imagine so. And maybe any kinds of principles for creating this kind of content. Sure. Absolutely. Yes. So when I talk about form-based content, I'm basically talking about a journey where a customer is kind of inputting information, sharing data with us essentially so that with the aim of getting a result or information back from us or a success, so we've completed something. So in terms of what that might look like in terms of how we would 
identify the content and, and test its success. We'd be looking at things like analytics. If, it's, if something's live already and we might be looking to improve it, we would look at analytics around kind of bounce rate and that kind of thing and then compare before and afters. We would also conduct things like content testing when we're in the design phase. Highlighter testing can be quite useful for this to kind of get people to identify what they're finding useful on the page, what they're finding confusing. Also, we would work closely with kind of user researchers and UX designers on usability testing to see where people might be struggling, pausing, asking questions. And that would all feed into how we would refine this kind of content. Yeah, it's a really interesting space, actually. Are there different tools that allow you to see like these hotspots where people are clicking and things like that uh, with the microcopy and if they're taking the right action or is this all interview based? We use a combination. Uh, we use things like Adobe Analytics, really, is the main one we would use. Um, and we're, we're very lucky that we have um, an analytics team that we work with who specialize in that. They really help out with that kind of thing. But there's lots of really useful tools for that. Yeah. So a lot of these decisions you make are really based on data that you acquire as people use it. Yeah, as much as possible. I think there's this famous saying, you know, content is never done. You just gave up. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just give up. It's, just, yeah. it's never going to work. <laughs> yeah, it could be easily misinterpreted, couldn't it? Right. Uh, it, it <laughs> what we essentially mean by that is um, that you can, you know, there's the design phase, there's putting it live, but then there's monitoring and refining. Right. So once content is live, that doesn't mean you just forget about it. It means you monitor it. You, that's where you can really use your data and your insights that are kind of coming through from these tools to see how this content is performing, how people are moving through these journeys, where they might be getting stuck or dropping off and that kind of thing, and then refining it based on that. So you're always improving. And, and you know, I think that makes sense because behaviors evolve quite rapidly as well. You know, I remember a really good example was like when I was working on a project and we had, it was right when the kind of GDPR laws came into place in England around, you know, you had to get people to accept, actively accept that, um, that you know, that we might be using their data and all companies had to do this. And what it essentially meant was that a certain kind of type of pop-up suddenly got interpreted very differently. We had a few in our journey and they'd previously been used to get people to accept terms and conditions that are really key point in the journey and all of a sudden we were just seeing banner blindness completely where people were just like oh another one <laughs> just clicking, right. which is the kind of conventional behavior so that was a really interesting one because if that content had just been left you well it worked it worked when we made it it's fine but actually the behavior and the mental model of what that content was doing had changed and therefore our strategy needed to change as a result and that's interesting that because one of the things that I think most of the time people don't think about when creating any kind of content, not just microcopy, is, I mean, people create content right and left, but the maintenance of it is what usually is nobody goes back to to maintain it. And then putting KPIs around it, right, to see what is the success criteria here. Can you touch a little bit upon those two things? Yeah, that often happens. And I think what you can do as a content designer is you bring those those measures of success into you know the conversations that you'll have early on around the content so we all often say you know we suggest this this will be subject to further validation as we go through we'd like to monitor this and we make all those recommendations and identify risks as we go through to help um, our kind of programs and project teams make those decisions and and empower us to keep monitoring that content because you know there's lots to do i think it's always about kind of being realistic about what you can control so one thing i kind of often think about as well is just you know advocating for 
efficient content. So we've just worked, I've worked on our various projects where we've kind of really worked to reduce content bloat and make things as focused as possible and reduce duplication. So if management of content is a task and it's a task that's unlikely to be, it's hard to get kind of effort and investment in for your organization, then, you know, that's a really good argument for making sure that what you do have there is really manageable. Like don't make it harder for yourself. (laughs) Um, So that's something that I often kind of think about when we're making improvements to, you know, larger journeys or or content areas on a website and that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I want to touch a little bit upon microcopy and the perception of loading time and, specifically like mobile devices, right? Where that's critical. Can microcopy help with that? Yes, I think so. I've seen some really nice examples of that actually. And I think it can be paired really nicely with UI design as well. If you have something really pleasant or amusing or characterful to go alongside your content, that can work really well. But in terms of what the content itself would do, I think it's about, you know, informing the user and empowering them to make informed decisions. So telling them how long these waits are going to be, what's happening, what the wait, what's causing it, that kind of thing, so that they can feel, yeah, as I say, informed. I think to leave someone with nothing is to, you know, is to risk them kind of just disengaging, really. They don't understand what's going on. It's annoying. They're in a rush. Well, they'll just step away. But if they understand what's going on, they're more likely to just appreciate that and engage it and just wait if it's especially if it's quite a short wait time you know we know attention spans can be short so informing always seems like the more helpful option i'm 100 percent with you i you can put the example for me at least a perfect example is a restaurant and i don't mind waiting for my food but i want to be kept informed like hey this is what's going on but if they if the waiter disappears for an hour and never comes back and then brings me the food I'd probably be very, quote unquote, hangry, right? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Where if I stole that one hour wait, but you keep me informed, hey, we're behind, this is what's going on. I think it helps. Yes, definitely. Definitely. We had one in a journey where we kind of had a a loading page, which was essentially, it was almost, a you know, sometimes they're put in deliberately, even if there isn't a wait, just to signify that something significant's happened. So we had one around the fact that we'd sent some important, they got to a point in the journey, they'd you know, they'd asked to have certain documents sent to them. So we had a holding page where we indicated that those documents were now being sent to their inbox and they would be there just to demonstrate that actually that was an important kind of a pause, an important moment in that journey. So it's also about directing attention sometimes as well. Yeah, totally. So in a web project, there's usually a number of people working on it. Who should learn about microcopy? Of course, outside of content authors, which by default, they need to know. But anybody else in that team, do you recommend that, hey, at a minimum, you should understand microcopy? Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, always advocating for content design, for sure. Like, I think a big part of our role is to kind of inform. It's a relatively new discipline, and that applies to microcopy as well. You want to tell people about it, get them to understand it. As I say, I think for me, I've seen it be particularly beneficial where I've informed and educated developers, business analysts, you know, where they'll kind of go, well, we need um, an error message and that that's where you can kind of go down that route of, well, actually you might need more than that. You might need more than one. You might need five, (laughs) which is greeted with big smiles. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But yeah, I think the more you can kind of share the rationale with whoever you might be working with, or just get to grips with it yourselves, if it's an area that you're not necessarily usually working in detail with, I think the best place to start is to look at accessibility around these things, this type of content, because if nothing else, that helps you understand that the fundamental need in order to make sure that as many people as possible can use and make sense of that content. 
but yeah, I think there's definitely a benefit to everyone understanding it in, in a given team. Yeah, definitely. So there's the brand voice, right, that you have to follow. And then there is the personality of the content author. What's the balance there? Yeah. So in terms of balancing that, I would say, you know, as writers, you know, that's what we do is we take on a brand voice and we, um, and we represent a brand. And so it's really a natural thing to kind of step into any given task or organization or first kind of say like, okay, what are we representing here? What are we trying to say? In terms of what that means in terms of balance, I do think it's it's about embodying that brand. And the only thing I would say is that when you're thinking about micro copy is sometimes you're trying to dial up or dial down that that brand voice, depending on the nature of the content. And we have quite a lot of conversations in our team about, you know, the role that the balancing of tone of voice and efficiency or the effectiveness, the succinctness of content when it is in that micro copy kind of format, because you're trying to do a lot with very few words usually. So it can be, despite the fact that it's often some of the smallest content in a given journey, it's, it can be some of the most challenging because you're trying to do so much. Well, Melissa, we're getting to the end here. Is there anything else I should ask you that you think it's important for anybody that wants to write microcopy or wants to understand more about microcopy? I think the main thing when you're thinking about microcopy is just to think about the purpose and to really try and with any kind of content, one of the things I'm often advocating for is that, you know, say it once, say it right. So make sure that when you're putting content on the page, it's earned its place. It has a specific purpose and a specific role. And if and one of the kind of most effective things you can do through a journey or a page is, is do a kind of a repetition analysis. And it really helps you get to the heart of what's going on with content and what purpose it, it has and dialing back to taxonomy, you know, why it's there. Can you categorize it? Actually, do we have three pieces of content doing a very similar thing? So, yeah, I think it's the analysis is very powerful. And I think that's a really good starting point for anything like this. So when you talk to people, do you think in microcopy terms and try to get them to perform that action you want? <laughs> I do in emails. You do in emails, I see. Yeah. <laughs> in emails, I'm very much kind of, um, uh, there's some classic kind of content design techniques like front loading a sentence, you know, where you put the most important, most distinctive word first and bullet pointing out to really simple steps. So that it's very scannable and simple. And I do that in emails constantly Got it. Um, and, and for other people on their emails. If they're That's, too funny. That's too funny. <laughs> I, I just pictured you like uh, on the dinner table, like using some sort of CTA through conversation to see if it works or not. Oh yeah. That's, I've heard this one actually on another podcast the other day about the power of saying pop. So if you're kind of asking someone to do something, we'll give them an instruction. If you say like, oh, if you wouldn't mind just popping that in an email, if you wouldn't mind just popping the oven on or something like that, it's a very friendly way of telling someone what to do. And it can be very effective. People rarely say no. I like that. I'm not sure if I could use it here in the States. I don't know if people would understand that. Maybe. That I don't know. It sounds like a friendly word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a super friendly kind of like just really friendly and formal term for, you know, if you could just do that. <laughs> totally. So yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're pretty much at the end. I do want to ask you one last question, which is how do you keep up with the industry? Do you have any resources you recommend? Yes, of course. So in terms of keeping up with the industry, there's, you know, there's your classics like the Nielsen Norman group, which I think are a really good frame of reference. If you're trying to learn about something at the beginning and you just want to kind of a really good core definition in the content design space, organizations like gov.uk and GDS are 
really, I really respect them in terms of what they've done in terms of their content design systems. Equally, as a team, we like to do kind of, especially since this year, we've been doing a lot of kind of group watches of industry talks, you know, uh, webinars and that kind of thing, where we'll kind of all watch them through Teams and then chat about them afterwards. There's a few conferences we've watched recently, talks from including Utterly Content, Button Conference and that kind of thing. Equally, you know, social media can be a really useful resource for this kind of thing because everyone's sharing their ideas and there's always a new conversation to be had and explored. Yeah, definitely. Well, talk about micro copy and social media. Uh, Twitter was the king. I mean, they expanded the number of characters now, but it used to be pretty much micro copy, right? You had to get your message in what, 140 characters, I think it was. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really good example. Yeah. That's a great place to start. Yeah. That how actually, people can be. <laughs> well, and honestly, that really helped me hone in uh, whenever I would do any kind of business thing, hone in the message, right? Because mm-hmm. I would start by typing in that elevator pitch in Twitter and it would, mm-hmm. it would cut me off. So I would start, you know, figuring out how do I get it to get to Twitter? And then mm-hmm. that became my elevator pitch for, let's say, my website or something, because it really does help. Definitely. Oh, on that point, I forgot to mention, but there's a couple of really nice resources when you're trying to refine your content and improve that readability and especially that succinctness. Uh, We use kind of Readable and Hemingway, which you can use just on a browser or, or as an app, I think. And they basically help you identify complexities in your sentence structures. And you can really whittle down word counts and tone of voice that way to get a really effective message. And they're quite fun as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for uh, sharing all the knowledge you have. We really appreciate that. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Now, if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give a uh, Twitter URL, website, whatever you like? Yeah, sure. So my website is melissaburfit.co.uk, but you can also reach me with that name, Melissa Burfitt, on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. So Melissa, thank you so much. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit headlesscreator.com for more podcast episodes and to watch the content modeling show where I show you how to content model live on Twitch. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everybody.